welcome to the next episode of the Compete Waffle. My name's Alicia. I'm an advanced sports dietitian with Compete Nutrition and also the co-founder of Compete Nutrition. And for this episode, we are introducing you to an epic human and his name is Nat Heath. Now, we were fortunate enough to uh, meet Nat many years ago through triathlon circles and also realized that we grew up very close um, in geography between Tari and Foster. So um, it was an absolute pleasure to be able to invite Nat onto the podcast um, today to talk through all things um, running to start with. Uh, he is about to venture into a 100K run and it's not your usual 100K run. It isn't a trail run. It isn't um, something that's organized by others. It has been organized um, through him um, as part of NADOC week uh, and also in support of the Indigenous Marathon Foundation also. So um, Nat is an Aboriginal boy who grew up in Foster and he speaks so beautifully in this podcast about his history, what life was like as a boy growing up as an Aboriginal in his community. He speaks incredible words around what running and movement means to him, what he's working on personally to always aim to be better, but also gives some incredible stories behind his generations. The the trauma that they experienced, there's no other word for it. And what that now means to him as he moves forward in his community in um, helping to support the younger kids. Uh, and he's involved um, in the youth very heavily, uh, both in his job, but also outside of his work as well. Um, with this run coming up, he is asking people to join in with him. So if you are in Newcastle on the 12th of July, we would love you to be a part of this run and you don't have to do the full 100k our co-founder dan is going to do at least 20ks with him um, but it is something that you are more than welcome to be a part of or if you can't run then you can absolutely come and cheer on um, and if you are able then donations are being accepted and i'll link that to the podcast details i you know to cover this these topics at the time we're in um, has been an absolute honor uh, to be able to listen to his story um, and to have the opportunity to ask him how we can do better i can do better and how we can help has been um, something that i'm really you know feel very privileged to have been able to do and i just know that his um, learnings his insights and his pragmatic recommendations are going to resonate with so many of you so I've chatted enough um, in this intro and I'm very, very excited to introduce you to Nat. Um, and so, yeah, I just hope you enjoy all the things that we talk about in this podcast. Um, I will link in the show notes so that you can go follow along, um, really learn some new things, uh, listen more uh, and for everyone to be involved in this really cool community um, that he's creating and being a part of. So enjoy. Welcome, Nat. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the Compete Waffle. Thank you very much, Leish, uh, for having us. Uh, obviously, really appreciative of you giving up your time and also I guess, supporting um, what I'm looking to do in the next couple of weeks. And I yes. just also <laughs> want to acknowledge that I am meeting on Bidjigal Country. So as an Aboriginal person, it's always important to acknowledge that I am meeting on someone else's country. So I just wanted to acknowledge, you know, the mob from here and all the elders past and present who, you know, paved the way for people like myself. Beautiful. I am on a Wobbicle land um, and my beautiful kids know their Wobbicle song from school and they sing it all the time at home and I freaking love it. So yeah, thank you to all the elders past and present for that as well. <laughs> thank you i've got um so much to talk to you about today dan was laughing because i had so many little things that i wanted to ask you he's like well that's going to be a two-hour podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i will try not to waffle too much i'm very excited for it so i was talking to dan if for those who don't know dan um he's my husband but also co-founder of compete uh and a friend of nats um who we were fortunate to meet through triathlon yeah that's true back in <laughs> he, it would have been 2011 i think Oh my goodness. And uh, Dan has made it very clear that you have yet to beat him um, because you crossed paths between your long distance and sprint distance on um, triathlon days. So yeah, not competitive at all, you boys, honestly. The banter is ridiculous. Tell him to feel free to race me today. I'll be happy yeah. to race him. <laughs> yeah, so that's the interesting part because he has agreed that he's going to do part of this run um, with you. Now, what is it that you're about to venture into, Nat? 
Yeah, so I'll give you a bit of the, I guess, yeah. the longer version of the story. Definitely. So look, the We've got two hours apparently, so all good. Yeah. <laughs> so the Indigenous Marathon Foundation, which um, was formerly known as the Indigenous Marathon Project, which I was a part of in 2012, um, I guess because of the whole COVID situation, they're putting on what's called the Run, Sweat and Spire Festival, which is like mm. a virtual running festival. And they're doing that um, in collaboration with the National NAIDOC Committee. So it's as part of what would formerly be NAIDOC Week. So most NAIDOC events, um, so NAIDOC, for those who don't know, stands for the National Aboriginal Islander Day of Celebration. So it's about celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and all the good things in that, which is obviously you know, interesting at this point in time with what's happening in Australia and across the world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're essentially putting on a virtual running festival, which, you know, give people a goal because, you know, a lot of races have come to, um, I guess they're just not happening at the moment due to COVID. It was we just obviously had, I think, um, one of the ministers announced that we can now have events, which is great. But essentially um, from the 5th to the 12th of August, they've got this event online that people can opt in. So it's, it gives them an opportunity to have something to train for. Mm. Now, for me, like obviously as an ex-graduate and now I'm on the board of directors, I obviously wanted to be a part of this virtual running festival. And I thought, well, it's also IMP's 10th year. You know, we haven't really done much to celebrate the fact that IMP's been going for 10 years yeah, at well, 90 yeah. Yeah, and we've had over 90 graduates go through the, that project, which essentially it selects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from across Australia, with most of them not having much running background. And in a six-month, um, I guess, period, trains them up to the New York Marathon or the Boston Marathon, depending on where they go. Yeah, and, if you don't you know, follow IMP, it's an incredible program. Yeah. I, I've been a massive fan since I remember when it first started. I was like, gosh, that is such a cool idea. Um, were you one of the first years to go through? Yeah, so we were the third year. So yeah. it started in 2010 with um, four fellows from uh, Central Australia. So there was, there was Charlie Ma, um, Juan Darwin up in Meningreta, Caleb Hart from Alice Springs, and Charlie was from Alice Springs, and also I think Joseph Davies from Kununurra. So it started with four blokes, mm. and then the next year I think they they picked a much bigger squad and they had um, females and males, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And then um, my year they started I think selecting six men, six women, which has become sort of the guide of what they do now. Um, this year has been interesting. They've, they've picked a, a bigger squad, but because everything's online and virtual and we, we're not really sure if New York Marathon is going to yeah. take place, um, New York's not necessarily the end goal for them. It's like a, a bit different. So it's actually great because you're getting people who are committed to wanting to run a marathon to, I guess, mm -hmm. promote health and well-being within their communities. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily about this exciting trip overseas. It's about and for the part of the Indigenous Marathon Project, it's not just about like the mar finishing the marathon's the start line in a way. It's like oh, you wow. finish that. So what do you do with it next? Yeah. Um, but yeah, coming back to I guess I went out for a run and I was like, well, what should I do for this virtual running festival? And I was like, well, I could run ten kilometers for every year that INP has been going for, which equals a hundred kilometers. And yeah. I'd always wanted to do a hundred kilometer race, um, but didn't really have the reason. And I was like. Well, let's do a, as part of that virtual running festival, let's do 100 kilometres. I'll go back up into Newcastle. People can join us. If we can, we'll try to get a grad from each year to join us and see what happens. And I can fundraise from IMF and promote the, um, the festival. And I'll just give it a quick shout out too. So if you do yeah. want to do the um, festival, it is runsquetinspired.org. So you can go online. Um, but I'm sure... Alicia, you'll probably... Um, I'll share. definitely link yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, the more we can get to this, the more fun it'll be, really. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, look, I'm really looking forward. And the good thing is, and the scary thing is, I don't actually know if I can do it. And that's a part of the challenge. And that's what I want to promote, um, you know, to all Australians, but, you know, particularly to our own community that, you know, it's to push yourself, to challenge yourself and get outside your comfort zone. And, and again, that's a bit about what IMP is about. It's challenging yourself to be better. Mm. Um, and this is a new challenge for me. I love that. I'm, I'm really, really excited. And you can, I rest assured, we'll be there supporting you because I, I think Dan has said, well, maybe I can just do the last 20K. 
<laughs> so that you but, might be a little bit slower. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I don't really know what sort of pace I'll be running. Like, I'm going to start at six, and what I'll probably tell people as a guide is, you know, be there sort of on the 45-minute mark. But I imagine, so at the start, it'll be anywhere from 50 minutes to an hour. So at the end of each 10K loop, um, so what I'm doing is we've got two 10K loops that I'll be doing starting from Nobby's Beach. One will be heading sort of west um, along the river around Wickham and incorporating the park run for those who know Newcastle. And the other 10K is a, a much hillier loop where we go towards Merriweather via King Edward Park. Um, so it's, that's a nice challenge, but essentially, yeah. yeah, people can join in across that loop. And, you know, if we leave every sort of between 45 minutes and an hour, um, and we'll just work it out as we go. Love that. And uh, yes, so for the locals who are in Newcastle, you'll know that one of those loops is extremely flat, probably your friendly 10K. And then the King Edward Park one is going to be pretty painful. So yeah, it, it's really, really cool. I was talking to um, Kurt the other day and he's like, yeah, I might just choose that flat one. <laughs> yeah, Kurt Fernley? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm stoked. So um, Kurt's obviously an ambassador of IMF. So the first two people I contacted when I was like, because I was thinking where to do this, Sydney, Newcastle or Upper Foster. And because I, so I grew up in Foster, um, which is a great place, and we'll probably talk about that more. Um, but I felt I knew it would be the easiest as far as um, the functionality of it. But also, Newcastle's always been great at supporting the Indigenous Marathon Foundation and getting right behind it. And they've got such a big run um, groups there. So I figured we'd probably get more buy in. But the first two people I messaged were to see if they would support or get involved was Kurt and um, Dave Robbo. So both the mayor and the empire of Newcastle, I call them. So 100%. Yeah. yeah. Oh, mate. Yeah, you're going to get some characters there. It should be really fun. So um, in terms of supporting this run, there is the opportunity to donate as well, isn't there? That's correct. So um, I do have a GoFundRaise donate page, which yeah. is really long to read out um but i'll give it i'll send it to alicia to just share. send me the link yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely. and then also those who are running i'm sure will donate in other ways uh if it's not monetary you know i think we're both the first to admit that this isn't the easiest time yeah. for a lot of people right now and yeah. so if, um monetary you can't commit mm. or um like give towards in terms of the proceeds there's lots of other opportunities there to show your um respect and show your support uh or yeah. also join in on the run yeah 100 percent. like i'm just as excited like so the fundraising aspect that's you know that's a that's the added bonus and if you can get like i've been we've been really fortunate so far so i set a goal of ten thousand because it kind of ten thousand one hundred it all kind of sounded nice if we don't get there, we don't get there. If we get more, then great. Um, but, you know, I'd be more happy to get, instead of just, you know, might have been without doing this, you know, we might have had 500 people sign up for the running festival. If I somehow encourage, you know, 150 people in Newcastle to sign up and also elsewhere to go do it. We've got, had one mate from New Zealand has contacted us going, I'm going to do the 100K too. And he's signing up and getting more people. So that's also, you know, you know, they might sign up, it might cost 30 bucks. There's money going towards IMF as well. So it's a, you know, it's still like in a way fundraising for it as well. Yeah, that's incredible. And I'm so, so excited. What date are you doing on? I don't even know if we've said that. Yeah, so it's, I'm doing it on July 12th. So the festival runs all the way from the 5th to the 12th. Um, Gold Coast Marathon would normally be on the weekend of the 5th. So this year's squad are actually going to be doing their test event on that uh, first weekend. Um, so I'll probably go out and try to run with a group of those guys who are based in New South Wales to support them. So I wanted that weekend to focus on them. I didn't want to take away from it. And by doing on the sort of 12th, that's the end of NAIDOC week, which I think is a nice way to wrap it up. And also I need more time for training. Um, if I would have liked to have thought about this about three weeks earlier, um, I'm probably a little bit late, but um, look, training so far is I did a 45 kilometer run last Sunday and it went really well. So mm -hmm. I think it's just, just about that and you'll be sweet. It's fine. Yeah, easy. <laughs> easy. What has what has running meant to you, Nat? Like, is that something you did before you were part of the IMF, or is that something that you really came across through IMF and um, has have taken on since? It's it's a little bit of both, really. So as a kid. Um, I grew up playing soccer. I did every single sport 
manageable, which was part of my problem. My dad always used to say, you're just doing too much. And so you're jack of all trades, but you're not the master of any. Um, so I grew up playing soccer and that was my main sport. And through that, I, I got pretty good at running just naturally from doing that. And also just doing a bit of training, like a couple of 5k runs. So like through school, I made like sort of the regional level for athletics and whatnot, but it was never like a focus. And I was also fortunate because where I grew up, Foster, the Foster Ironman used to be. So I was always sort of engaged in running triathlon. I never did triathlons, but it always intrigued me and interested me. So I, um, I guess fast forward in around sort of 2010, I think I did my first like 10K running event. But I was playing, I'd switched to rugby union by this stage. And I actually end up during 2010, I got Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, um, essentially an illness where your immune system attacks your nervous system. So I went from, you know, playing sort of first grade football to, you know, a week later, I could no longer sort of walk to well, no longer run. Then all of a sudden I couldn't walk. So it's kind of creates like a paralysis throughout your body. Mm. And it's, it's amazing when you lose your ability to run how much you like realize you've taken that for granted. I remember sitting in hospital going, I just love to be able to run again. That was the only sort of thought. Mm. Um, and so the doctors said to us, cause it is a syndrome. They don't know, you know, what the outcome could be. Most of the time people have a full recovery, but there can be on sort of long-term effects. And the one thing he said is you probably won't have the same speed. Um, you won't have the same endurance and sort of seminar. So I sort of took that as a bit of a challenge to like, well, I should test myself. And so while I was in hospital, I set a couple of goals, which was first one was to go back and play first grade rugby. The second was, well, the first one was to walk. And then the second one was to play, um, sorry, first grade rugby. And the second one was to do, third one was to do like a triathlon because I saw that as the test of endurance. So I um, eventually started getting better and it took about six months and I ended up signing up for the Spark Helmore Triathlon in Newcastle in 2011. Did that, came like nearly last. I think I was, there's 260 people. I think I came 210th. Um, but it was like just the best feeling to finish. And that got me interested to do more triathlons sort of stuff, which as triathlons, you got running involved. And yeah, sort of did a, a few more um, at the back end of that year up at Foster. And then in one of my mates actually in Newcastle, I'll give him a shout out, Nigel Welsh. Um, he came up to us and said, he must've noticed I was doing this, getting into this sort of stuff. He said, oh, you should try it for the Indigenous Marathon Project. And I'd heard about it and I, around the same time, the documentary that was um, which is called Running Into America come out, which highlighted the four fellows that I was talking about earlier. Yeah, and thought, yeah the story was just um, just amazing to watch and really engaging. And Charlie Ma in particular, who is now a really good friend of mine, he was the first, I guess, person across the finish line. So he's regarded as the first graduate. Um, I just really, he inspired us a lot. So I figured, yeah, you know what, try out. And, you know, fortunately I was selected and really from that, that, grew my passion so I'd started to I guess get into running but it was in that year I really became passionate about it and learned to love running because running is one of those funny things that it's a can be a really love-hate relationship and I found through that year I started to love running it became a really good release for me but also because I was in this indigenous marathon project as far as the training aspect I really felt like I wasn't just running for myself. I was representing something big. I was representing mm. my family, my community and my people as a whole. Yeah. And that put more onus to actually commit to it. Mm. Um, so I guess like what that project did to me, it, it really kind of changed my sort of life in what I did for the rest of it. Like I became more into running and went back into triathlons. Um, I guess it gave me more respect for myself in what I could and couldn't do um, and also to make me realize the thing with team sports I found is you know you could kind of get away with not doing all the things because you, you sometimes you have people carrying it and also if you do the work sometimes then you're hindered by other people as well and the one thing that's what I love about running and triathlon is that you know the onus is on you if you don't put in the work you don't get the reward 
I there's think really no hiding is there yeah and that translated then I guess to life too it's like you start to realize if you want something then you have to do it you can't rely on other people to do it for you I think that's kind of you know what IMP kind of made me understand it also opened up as far as platform just like to meet people like Kurt Fernley Dave Roberts like the simple things too like meeting people like Dave Robbo um and for those in Newcastle who know Dave like that guy's a legend like he doesn't get the credit and he doesn't seek the credit that he deserves but it's those little individual relationships and people you come across like yourself um Dan Nathan Archer all those sort of guys like they become lifelong friends and running created that platform to meet new people and to, you know, to have new challenges that I probably wouldn't have had without IMP. Oh, absolutely agree. I think the the connection piece and the, um, you know, the stories behind each person, everyone has this background to how they ended up, you know, in running or triathlon. And I'm sure there's so many other sports that that is the same of, but it's not. And I think also when you train in endurance, there's so much time to talk. (laughs) You know, there's so much rambling and banter and um, it's such a beautiful time to get to know people in a space where there isn't any other distraction, uh, which is so common now with phones and, um, you know, screens in front of us. There is no screen in front of you when you are on the bike and you are absolutely hurting. Like there's just not nothing to hide behind. And it's a really um, amazing time time and also incredible for mental health I think which you touched on you um you spoke a little bit about your childhood and being um from foster I myself is from Tari and this is another connection uh so can you tell us a bit about what it was like growing up um I would love to hear what it was like growing up uh as an Indigenous person in foster uh, and also you know just um what that's taught you moving forward yeah so uh look to I've had a really lucky life and I was really lucky in the way that I was raised. Um, the, the backdrop of that is, so um, I was born in Sydney um, and unfortunately, which has probably carried on a little bit for me in the context of triathlon is, so both my parents were heroin addicts and my, my mother, so I was with my mother initially and she kind of went, being a heroin addict, kind of did the wrong things and left us and police ended up picking us up. So what ended up happening is, and my father had moved away by this stage, I ended up getting, um, the police contacted my grandmother, who was my um, dad's mother, and she essentially took us in and she had a partner who I regard as my dad. So. He also, so this poor bugger, me, me dad, he raised both my dad and two uncles and myself. Um, so my dad ended up passing away when I was 11 months old and then we moved, he was buried at Foster and he was the eldest child. So his mother wanted to move up to Foster to be close to where he was, um, I guess, buried. So hence why I ended up in Foster. So both... Um, my nana and my dad, they were non-Indigenous. Um, my grandfather uh, was Aboriginal and he, their relationship had ended quite early. So it was, I guess, interesting for me. So I went to Pacific Palms Public School and I was really like the only Aboriginal kid there, which when you're young, it's not really a big deal. Like you're just a kid, all kids play with kids. Yeah. Um, my nana ended up passing away when I was seven, um, due to smoking, well, she she had an illness, but really it was due to smoking. And after, I guess, her son had died, she and she lost another son too, she was, I guess, become a little bit unwell. Um, but it was interesting. I remember sitting in the doctors and I was like trying to get clarity as a seven-year-old um, why she'd passed away. And like the, the backdrop was smoking. So I was like, from that point, I will never smoke a cigarette in my life and I never have. So... It's interesting, like, that bad thing ended up a good thing for me in a different respect. And obviously, my father and mother being addicts, addictive personalities, that carried out for me, but with sport. Like, sport was always my addiction. Mm. Uh, And to be honest, like, that never affected me because I wasn't really aware of it as a child. Um, It's not till you're older you start to put together context and you hear stories you start to understand um so 
but going back, so my dad, like he raised us, took us everywhere. Like, so I had a, a really amazing childhood. Um, but yeah, so being an Aboriginal kid at school was fine until really probably year four or year five. It was probably year five. Then all of a sudden, kids just go, like, it's just one day, like, they're, they're trying to understand the context. So your dad who raises is white, but you're different. Yeah. Why is that? And you're like, oh, well, he's like, he's my dad, but he's not my biological father. And they're like, okay, so what, what are you then? And like, oh, I'm Aboriginal. And they're like, oh, no big deal. The next day kind of thing, it was like, oh, you're an Abo, you're a Coon. Like, the whole context just sort of changed. Um, and I didn't really understand it. And you know, naturally, it's not a good thing what they've called you, but you, I didn't really understand the context. Mm. Um, so you start to gather and your natural thing is you all of a sudden become, I was really lucky because I was good at sport. I was like the best in our sport, pretty much majority of sports. That that was my pathway to be successful. I was pretty, I did pretty well in school, um, but it was never my interest. interest. Like if you look at all my reports, they're like, Nat would just show half the interest in school as he does sport. Like he'd be brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that it was, was almost your card for belonging, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and Adam Goods talked about, I was, I was not comparing myself to Adam Goods in no way, but he did say an interesting thing. I was at a, a conference and he presented and he was like, you know, sporting was where he could be better or equal. And in some contexts, that's probably how I felt too. Mm. Um, but it was interesting as a young child, you're trying to understand and learn and deal with that. And you, you want to fight everyone, but you can't fight everyone because, well, I was lucky I was bigger than everyone, but no one wanted to fight me. And, but I probably would have sucked at fighting anyway. But, you know, it made me under, like, you kind of understand, okay, well, there's a difference here. So you try to work out and understand what the difference is. And if anything, instead of making me be less proud of being Aboriginal, it made me want to learn more. Wow. And made me more interested, more proud of who I was. Yeah, wow. Going to high school, then the context flips. So in Foster, you got the Aboriginal Mish there. And all of a sudden, you go from being the only Aboriginal kid to there's heaps. So I then, I just naturally had different groups of friends. So I had kind of like me soccer mates. You had a group of surfing mates. And then I had the Blackfellas. And I would just hang with all sort of three groups. But that was, I just naturally wanted i just naturally went with black colors and it wasn't like something i was trying to put it was just like a natural thing so and that became then a different thing in that you start to learn more about being a black fella and what that is and you know it was it, the, the world's different today like i love hearing the fact that you were just talking about your kids understanding what we could sound like yeah. we never knew that like i didn't we didn't even really talk about the country that we're at in foster like where am i country like but the black fella so today a lot of times with black fellas you talk about well, where's your mob who are you from if you're not from there there's kind of like because i'm not from where am i so my people are yeah. Mudder, and Manang people from wa mm. yeah. oh, the wow. reason why we end up over here is my yeah. oh, there's another story here yeah, like, there's what? another story like my grandfather was a merchant seaman so they all grew up in um, Fremantle. And him and his brother all worked in the shipping industry, but he ended up moving over to Sydney, working in the shipping industry. They then had, obviously, my, my nana and they had three children. I'll go just sticking with a uh, WA story. So to give you some context of my backgrounds, really interesting. So my great-grandmother being Madhujara, she was actually, so Madhujara people from Western Desert. So she was from Waluna, which, um, have you ever seen Rubber Proof Fence? I have. So you might, you might remember in the movie, there's the two sisters and the cousin Gracie. The cousin Gracie at one stage, go, she goes her own way and she's going to Waluna. So that's where my great-grandmother was from. Wow. She was removed as a two-year-old um, with her two sisters. She, her two sisters escaped did the same walk back to Waluna, but because she was a baby, she was left behind. And she ended up becoming, so they're all trained to be domestic servants. So, which essentially is a slave, like you're going, you work for someone else, you don't get paid. Um, so when they talk, it's interesting in Australia in the context, they're like, oh, you know, that happened in America, it didn't happen here. 
Like, well, that was only a comment today, wasn't it? Yeah, or Morris, yeah, yeah. Look, um, there's a lot of people who, one, probably just haven't been educated on it, but two, don't want to open their eyes because it's uncomfortable and people need to become uncomfortable with the fact of what happened in this country. Yes. But she she ended up becoming um, the domestic servant for A.O. Neville, who you might remember in that movie, is Mr. Devil, who becomes the chief protector of Aboriginal people. And it was before he became the chief protector. And what's really cool is um, in the, not that any of this stuff is cool, really, what happened, but he's trying to control her. So if you have a look at her paperwork, right, she requests new shoes. And then he writes to the chief protector saying, you know, Lillian has asked for new shoes. I would recommend not giving it. So they've got complete control of these people's lives. Anyway, at some stage, there's a, there's a document that says, oh, Lillian said she's met this Englishman named Philip Heath, who's my great-grandfather. Um, I think this is great because they wanted to have black fellas marry white fellas so they could breed out. Then the next one sort of says, uh, I've heard rumours that Philip Heath may be Aboriginal. I'll need to look, investigate further. And then the next one's, Philip Heath is Aboriginal and she has run off with him. And what I, I love about the story, so Philip Heath told A.O. Neville, like, pretty much, like, F off, you can't stop me, I'm in love with Lillian, and there's nothing you can do, because they were trying to prevent Aboriginal people marrying Aboriginal people. Yeah. But what, was, what I love about the story is A.O. Neville, who became the chief protector of Aboriginal people, couldn't even control my great-grandmother, who was his domestic servant. So I think, like, in that time, it kind of, and then talking about NAIDOC and resilience and... The fact that at that time, um, like they could have been jailed for that, they weren't. They weren't going to put up with it. They went and did it. Yeah. So they end up moving to Fremantle. They had three children: my grandfather, um, my great uncle Brian, and Marnie Joan. And Arnie Joan is an incredible woman. She's um, the last of the three. She was Aboriginal Australian of the Year in 1987. Wow. Western Australian Woman of the Year wow. in 88. She set up uh, Mahamudich Aboriginal Health College, mm. uh, which won a World Health Organization award. So she's wow. done a PhD. Um, um, she's now got uh, dementia, which is really unfortunate. Still got great wit. Oh. Um, but yeah, just so that sort of gives you, I guess, a snapshot of like that side. And such um, an important story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really no, that, that's all right. And I guess. So I didn't have heaps of that context, but going back to high school, of I knew I was from WA, but that was kind of it. Um, but so my Aboriginality, I really felt like I learned a lot from the foster community. And also what, what my best mate, well, one of my best mates, um, Byron Stewart, his family was from the South Coast, but grew up foster. So I learned his dad was kind of the black role model within the community but for me like I kind of as far as an Aboriginal role model he was the kind of guy I looked at he had a job he worked in health he's yeah. always dressed flash he always looked good he always spoke well like he's just yeah. and he's just a funny guy so mm -hmm. he became sort of that role model that and he always used to call himself my black father um, so that was kind of interesting as a context growing up and even through high school because I did hang with these different groups it was it was always um, I guess challenging in that if you go to a party and there wasn't other blackfellas then people felt like they had the right then to say things to you mm. like so like yeah I want I want oh, much names a lot of people that have grown and mm. since changed but mm. um, it was always difficult like because if you reacted then you became the angry person yeah. And it's very hard to argue when you're the only person. You feel like you're just arguing against 30 people, so you're always wrong, even mm -hmm. when you're right. Yeah. Uh, and, like, I think the world has gotten a lot better, but that was always challenging as a person. And um, I guess what was interesting, I was a bit of a cheeky kid and I used to get into a bit of trouble at school, like not bad trouble. believe. Really hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah Tila always goes, you're such a cheeky bastard. Um, but that then led me to, because I was used to annoy my role call teacher, she ended up wanting to get rid of me one day a week. So she made me become this SRC rep. So, cause you're the SRC rep for roll call. 
But that then led to essentially one of the teachers grabbed hold of us and a couple of the, we were probably in year 10, um, other Aboriginal kids and said, you know, we want to set up this program where you met to all the young year seven kids coming through. Mm-hmm. And um, that really changed my whole life in some context because I was going to be the same as my uncles, my grandparents. I just wanted to work in either the shipping industry or I wanted to work in the marine area. I was really fascinated about marine biology. Yeah. Um, but I sucked at science, so that was never going to work. But <laughs> I, we, we got, me and my mate, Byron, I'm sure we got these three boys um, who I'll just say their first names, Eddie, Ronald and Dale. And they were the cheekiest kids on earth. Like they just used to get up to mischief. But we always saw it as our role to look out for them, just like older kids had looked out for us. And that really steered us into a different areas like, well, and then I did Aboriginal studies in year 11, 12, and that kind of became, well, there's a lot more to this that I didn't realise. And I think what I'm passionate about now is working with young people which then led me into, you know, doing my degree at Newcastle Social Science. And ever since then, I've worked in some form of Aboriginal education. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess that kind of, in a nutshell, is a bit about my story in that context and the challenges around that. But um, I wouldn't change it. Like, I'm glad that that stuff happened Mm. um, as much as it kind of sucked sometimes. Um, because it helped develop me who I am. And also I've always, whether it's on issues of race, but just in issues in general, where I think things aren't right. It's, um, I've always kind of tried to stand up for things yeah. and gaining that knowledge then um, has helped us, I guess, in like, other paths in trying to educate other people on, you know, issues around whether it's deaths in custody or Aboriginal education, the way we can improve it. Um, the way that we can support children to get a better education and how we can change it so that it actually is relevant to Aboriginal people, um, all that stuff and all, I guess, the whole upbringing has helped get us to this point. And then, that. yeah, and then obviously using, I guess, my opportunity through IMP yeah. to become like a role model and promote health and wellbeing within our communities as well. Mm. Yeah, that would have been such a nice launch pad um, after your IMF uh, stint just to get a voice but also confidence within that voice to go, no, I, I know where I have to a place to play a part here. Yeah. Uh, and that community role that the IMF really um, work through, It's it, as you said, it's not just about the running, it's about the influence of community and um, just how powerful sport and activity and movement can be to creating identity and um, progress towards yeah. something here. Yeah. yeah, that that marginalisation that you had, um, you know, probably mostly through those teenage years, as you said, as kids, they're just curious. Um, yeah. And even, you know, our oldest, Ruben, he's four and a half and he's just curious. Like he, mm-hmm. he loves to know and understand. And, you know, at this stage, like he's learnt um, a really great amount about the Indigenous culture and now he's just trying to puzzle and fit it all in. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love that curiosity, but there's still this gap and I don't know if it's, you know, just how he's learnt so far of like mm. seeing the Indigenous population still not living in houses and still living how they previously were, like in huts and uh, caves and things. So he speaks about it in past tense and I'm trying to bring him, but it's just this really interesting thing that I'm curious about of like how he's starting to acknowledge and change, um, yeah, witness change. Yeah, yep. it's been really interesting just to hear him talk and um, hear about it. So, yeah. Yeah, look, it's interesting because there's always this context of like, well, you're not a real Aboriginal because you don't live this way. And it's like, well, what is a real Aboriginal? Uh, oh, like, wow, no, yes. No, there's like no such thing. Or even the whole context, oh, you're half Aboriginal. It's like, okay, so is my right arm or my left arm? like this? So the, yeah. the best sort of analogy, not analogy, but uh, when doing society and culture um, back in university days, and this doesn't, this relates to all cultures, but mm. how I see culture's fluid and it adapts, it learns, it grows, it takes on new forms. Mm-hmm. And someone brought in as example a lava lamp. Yeah, got the globs. So you could say like one glob could be Aboriginal culture, another glob could be um, English culture. Yep. Those two globs come together, and a new glob goes off. And right. so that culture 
is still attached to that culture, but it's a new form. Yeah. And you can really see that. So the biggest, uh, um, I'm going into a whole different area, but um, keep it really short. So um, the Aboriginal Knockout, which is a rugby league carnival, which is held every October long week, it's the biggest gathering of Aboriginal people in Australia and the world. Yeah. yeah. And that, from my perspective, has been come like a modern day corroboree but also initiation for young men. You mm. go and go from being a boy to then all of a sudden you play in the knockout, you represent your community, and that's like almost your man status, manhood status. Mm. And that's taking a non-Indigenous sport and adapting it to our culture and it's become... Yeah. Like if you have a look at where people have been successful, particularly in sports, the rugby leagues, it's the AFLs, and Aboriginal people have taken on... Well, AFL wasn't an Indigenous game, Um but taken on those cultures and made it their own, if that makes sense. 100%. So, you know, it's interesting. It is interesting for kids to try to like, oh, but that was, that's the way it's meant to be. And you're like, well, cult, you know, things change and people adapt and people take the good um, stuff where they can and use it, but they try to then adapt their own cultural aspect within it. Yeah. Yeah, that adaption. And um, I think kids also just like to know where things fit, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, and so, um, I, yeah, it's been really, really cool to see him learn and um, acknowledge and respect. And, uh, yeah, our, our daycare has um, one of their key educators is Indigenous, so I feel very fortunate to know that they're in such a supportive, open environment, and it's been very, very cool, um, yeah, to see that learning from the very start. Um, I was also, you know, like... I've also loved it, obviously being in Tari, the Birupai community, um, yeah. it was all very integrated um, into my learnings and um, yeah, like we would do the smoke ceremonies and we would learn so much about the Indigenous culture and um, I, I think I always just assumed that was a thing that people um, did but it, it, more and more so I've realised that that's a privilege that I've had to yeah. empathise and learn and know so many Indigenous people um, to just know that they're people and they're amazing and they've got incredible stories and, you know, everyone is different. And as you said, there's just, there's no normal, there's no one type. It's just yeah. they're, they've all got incredible stories and backstories and resilience, that word you used not long ago is just, just resonates um, so yeah. heavily with um, the whole community. Yeah. You... Your partner, Teela. <laughs> when did you meet? Uh, 2005, we met. Um, yeah. So we met at Newcastle Uni. She was, before she was a lawyer and before she was yeah. Teela Reid on TV. Yeah. A young girl from Gilgandra who was living in Newcastle, studying PE. She, so we met, there's, you know how there's uni games? Yes, yep. So we have what's also the Indigenous games at uni, um, yeah. where you compete in touch football, netball, basketball, and volleyball was generally the fourth sport. Yep. And she showed up to a training session in, yeah, 2005, um, and she was a gun touched by a gun yep. basketball. You wouldn't know if she's like five foot two, but she was incredible at basketball. She ended up getting the um, overall best competitor for the whole competition. So we won touch footy. We always used to win touch footy. Mm. And we got we end up losing in the semis for basketball, but Teeler essentially carried us through that whole <laughs> um, game. I still remember distinctly we needed two points to go to extra time and she got fouled and she hit both shots um, with no time left. It was pretty clutch. But anyway, um, she she was she was in a relationship. I was in a relationship, and we were just friends. There yeah. was, um, and she lived on campus, and I lived off campus. So we hung in different circles, but we always knew each other. Um, fast forward, I moved up the coast, worked up at Ballina Public School, which is still probably today the best job I've ever had. I was running an education program up there, and wow. one of the young fellows that when I first got my first day I met. We, we actually, I went and played the Didge with them. They were doing a dance up at Lennox Head yeah. in our place for the Gold Coast Titans, Brian Kelly. Um, oh, yeah. Really, really good kid. Um, but I ended up coming back to Newcastle in 2010. Teela had just come back from Canada. She studied abroad. And she had started teaching at Gorican High. And I was, my job was, I was working at Wallatooka, which is the Aboriginal unit at Newcastle. And we set up a touch team. 
and knowing Taylor was good at touch, I recruited her. <laughs> well played. And look, just we started hanging out and, you know, one thing led to another. And yeah, absolutely. Ten, yeah. 10 years later, we're, we're still together. Um, but yeah, it's been amazing to be a part of her journey from mm. you know, being a teacher to then going and she's gone and done her Juris Doctor, which is post-grad law. And, you know, she worked, she's been incredible. Like she's been very fortunate. She's been surrounded by great people, but mm. she has, she takes that tenacious um, aspect of what she like on a basketball court and she applies it to what she does in life. And mm. she's always been driven and works extremely hard. Like she comes home from work and then she's still working like, but yeah. in a different context. Yeah. Um, and she's gun ho in what she believes in, and she says it. So mm. she, what I love about her is, she calls a spade a spade, mm. and she doesn't tiptoe around things with no. people, like which is part of why I think she's been so successful, and the fact that she can then eloquently put it. Absolutely, yeah. The communication skills within that are just incredible, and I am positive that she must have driven you in directions that you never thought possible, and um, you know, Dan and I always repeat to each other, it's so important that we bring out the best in each other, and I have mm. no doubt that you and Teal are like, must just complement each other so well, but although you're both pretty um, competitive, so I'm sure that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's that's always, well look, relationships are always interesting, that's always a part yeah. of the challenge when yeah. uh, you've got two competitive people, mm. um, but she's, as she would say, she's the boss. <laughs> let's, not, uh, let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, but look, it's, it's definitely been great. I think we've both, um, we both support each other thoroughly. Yeah. Um, and, but we also are a reality check for each other too. Yeah. Um, which I think is really important. Um, I think the most important thing I can do for her is there's always tough days is just to be that supportive person yeah. and just to keep sort of going you can do this which she knows she can but sometimes you just need to to be able to talk that through Absolutely. and I think yeah from my aspect like definitely driven to be like that accountability bit like if you're going to do it then do it properly and also just to challenge sometimes you're like uh like whether it's sport or just your mindset like just mm. to have someone to challenge that I think really healthy for me like because it helped you'd be reflective and go oh maybe that's not the best way like mm, maybe there's mm. other ways you can do things so Incredible. Uh, the one thing yeah i've probably learned from her but haven't applied enough yet is um you know if you think of something then actually action it she mm. always action things i've always been got a great idea but never action it and mm, mm. um i think you know doing these things like the 100k um Another side note is we're starting up TriMob, which is like an Aboriginal triathlon club. Oh my God, amazing, yeah. Uh, which will be open to everyone. Um, if you want, follow TriMob on Instagram. Oh, I don't follow. No, I will. I will. Yeah, so it's only just sort of started. It was a conversation between me and a mate of mine, Tyrone, um, who just got into triathlon, you know, being a triathlete yourself mm. when you get a triathlon bug, how addictive it is. And overwhelming. So I think that supportive community, because, you know, you're not just having to learn one sport, you're learning like three sports, but also the logistics between those three sports. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. To have a community like that and a supportive community where you can see yourself. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing about um, the Indigenous side of things of bringing that into it is yeah. that you can only be who you can see. And yeah. if you see Nat or um, anyone else doing triathlon, you can just go up. I could do that. And it's yeah, similar yeah. to who you looked up to, you know, in Foster. Like, yeah. oh, that, you know, just seeing who you would like to become. And that can look yeah. very, very different. But, um, yeah, super important. And also, you know, a big thing around all the different body shapes and all the different body types. And just yeah. that diversity is just yeah. such an incredible thing. Um, what, what, like, and this is probably a big question. And I think you're probably still, like, I think all of us are still on that pathway of determining it. But, you know, with so much going on at the moment, like we have had just one thing after another. And also we mentioned it before we went on air is how, what do you recommend for people like, you know, who believe in this cause and are so driven and so uh, passionate about change 
Yeah. How should we be looking after ourselves within that? Like, how can we find that balance of, you know, the mental stress and the physical stress and the, you know, um, within this has to be recognised? Are there some things that you've really put in place to make sure that you're looking after yourself as well as making change and movement um, progress forward? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've put... I'm not structured and I'm not details. Hmm. Um, I think... You, you got to learn to switch off, which has been really so with what's going on, particularly yeah. the last couple of weeks. Um, it's, it's always difficult when you see people who you know have certain attitudes. Um, so at the moment, like I'm trying to counterbalance doing a whole heap of training, mm. then plus you got your job, and then outside your job, you really your job kind of never finishes for us anyway, in regards to the Aboriginal space, because you might finish your job, but then on the Saturday you're at a protest or online trying to educate people. Sometimes I think the biggest thing is sometimes for me, I've got to try to switch off and there's some things you, you can, you can't educate some people or some people don't want to be educated. If that makes sense. Um, I think you got to find, what's healthy and so in a sporting aspect um the one thing i really have to be careful is i can get so focused so like even for this 100k goal that it can then impact my emotions and the weight so if, say like on a sunday where i would normally do a long run we have our niece and nephew quite a fair bit on saturday and which would mean that i won't run till later in the afternoon and then my anxiety builds up and i never thought i had anxiety i don't know if i would but it's for like it's my own forced anxiety that the fact that I haven't done it, I become agitated. Yeah. And I became probably not fun to be around. And I have to check that. Mm. So I have to be really careful in is what I'm doing really is it worth a cause if it's not actually healthy then for people to be around me. Yeah. So yeah. that's something I've only just really come to realize that I need to check. I, I found mm probably been reflective when I was doing so in 2015 when I was really driven to make Hawaii and I ended up I was um, training really hard and ended up qualifying yeah. I probably in retrospect was not healthy in to be around yeah yeah in some respects in that I was so driven and that it then impacted everything on my life like I need to be home I can't socialize like I get anxious about thinking about it and I work it up. So I've got to learn not to work up over things that don't need to be worked up. Yeah. And probably the one thing I've tried to do a lot better now is like even the end of last year when I started getting back into triathlons is didn't really have a program. Mm -hmm. um, and the coach I had, um, Mitch, was one of the best coaches I've ever had. But what I've probably come to learn is if, and because he's like, you do this, you get good results. And it's true. Mm -hmm. But it then kind of impacts in my emotional well-being. If some days you just don't feel up to it, not yeah. to do it. I've just found I need to kind of work things around my work and life schedule because now I've got my niece and nephew. They originally lived out at Gilgandra. So we're kind of like their mum and dad in some respects. Yeah. Um, and I've always been like the fun uncle and I don't want to necessarily lose that aspect in that I don't want to become sometimes you've got to be so focused on these long distance things that you can impact on the rest of your life. So I think the thing I've tried to be, is be a bit more flexible and let go of things if I don't do it, like, mm. but don't feel like training in the morning and then therefore because of work and then family life, I can't train in the afternoon just to let that go. Yes. And that, that takes a while. Um, and I'd still say that's something I'm working on. Um, and I think what I've tried to do now is, um, go with the kids, say, look, I can't have you this night because I do need to do this the next mm. day. Mm. And when I do have that time, that's it. Like, I yeah. just let go of everything. Like, I forget about the fact that I've got to do something the next day. I just, like, just try to put that to bed and not worry about it. Mm. Um, yeah. And probably the next step is, as they get older, is how can I incorporate what I do with mm. them as well? Um and trying to manage that where it's not, I'm trying to make you do this because I need to do it and you fit into my schedule. Mm. Um, trying to work out 
will that work? And if it does and they enjoy it, great. If it doesn't, then I have to put that to bed as well. So Yeah, wow. I am positive that learning and that, you know, ongoing learning is going to resonate with so many. And I know it did for me, like listening to that, I was like, wow, that that was me. And you're kind of definitely explaining um, my struggles when I had kids, when I first started the family, because for someone who likes control and productivity Mm. and um, yeah, that anxiety and that loss of image and identity uh, is a really tricky one um, because yeah, kids, kids don't really follow the schedule and they don't Uh, want to have a guaranteed plan. Yeah. (laughs) I do find our generation interesting in that, like Mm. as a kid, everything was about me Mm. getting me to sport, getting me to here. And our generation, for the good aspect, we've, we've stayed active. But does that come at a cost to the kids in that, well, I've got to do this on Sunday so you can only have Saturday, if that makes sense. And I think yeah, I've had to check myself in trying to, well, if I'm going to do something, do I have to then just fit that around when kids sports no longer happening. So like yeah. for when the, my niece and nephew first moved and then my nephew got into footy, like, so we would take him to footy and that was kind of his thing. Cause that's, you know, important. Yeah. And I was like, well, that means I put my stuff to the side, mm-hmm. which was fine. And I just wasn't really interested in doing it. And, but I feel like I, when I talk to people around our generations, like, Oh, I've got to do this. I'm like, well, how does your kids fit into like what they do? And, I just think it's a different generation. Like kids were always the primary focus. You know, like I just don't remember. Adults just didn't do as much, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now it's like we have our own selfish endeavours we're still trying to do and we haven't put that to side and it's just trying to balance what's right or wrong or how to do that. So I've never thought about it in a generational sense, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I can't disagree. I, I think that is really something. Yeah, interesting. I, yeah, um, and we're we're still finding our rhythm. You know, we went for a family bike ride on Saturday, and it was like this moment of like, oh my god, I can see the light. Like I had the girls on the back. I was going very slowly. I think I did an eight k ride, Nat. So for someone who's yeah. done an online, it's just you know, it's really <laughs> a training session. It's an outdoor activity. And Dan ran and it was like, oh, wow, like we're doing something as a family and everyone is having a really good time. And it's just dropping those standards completely and having zero expectation um, to then ensure that we're not disappointed and ensure that we're not, um, you know, trying to do something that doesn't actually fit in with experience and the kids' um, lifestyles. And and your priorities change. And I think that's a really big thing to acknowledge and just be curious about and not judgmental, obviously, when you do have that anxiety or expectation, but just kind of tap in, as you said, and just go, oh, I'm just going to check myself on that uh, and really see where that's um, coming from. Yeah. I have just, Just um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to reflect on. And I think I'm going to myself be doing a little bit of reflecting on that very thing. And it's been a very long process and I wish it was something that I'd probably started a lot um, sooner when I had kids or at least been, been warned about, um, about just how big a shift uh, those changes are and that how long it can take to really challenge your priorities. Now, I am very conscious of time that, and I appreciate all the time that you've given us. One thing that I would love to get your um, advice and just insights on and something that I think has been weighing on a lot of us uh, is just simply how we can help. Like I know for myself, Mm. I have um, lots of strong, um, you know, just ideas and opinions and things, but I'm quite fearful to share them um, at the fear of either saying the wrong thing um, or, you know, saying something that offends uh and so simply i've just been listening and i would love to kind of get your ideas on and i'm sure everyone else would love to hear just how they can help and how they can do better um and just some practical pragmatic advice i think um for how we can move forward through this yeah so it's been interesting you get quite a few people reach out and go you know what can i do who can i donate to what so i think there's a couple of things that people can do one is like obviously what you've just talked about is listening um i think listening is really important and educating yourself as much as possible 
um, and as much as that interests you as well. Um, so there's the one thing was well, quite a few things. So what I suggest everyone's into social media. So follow people who are interesting that you can learn off. So obviously Teela being one of those people. So the, a couple of things that she's done is she's she set up um, Blackfella Book Club, which promotes a whole heap of um, I guess uh what's the right word um literature um written by aboriginal authors which is not necessarily always just about like aboriginal culture it's just literature written by aboriginal people so it opens you up to a different way of thinking which could be sci-fi you know fictional fictional um i think you know the big thing as first nations people is that we don't have and a part of what I guess Teela's really been advocating for is the Uluru Harkness Statement, which is about Aboriginal people having a voice. Um, so, like, people always say, like, might say the counter thing is like, well, that doesn't make sense in that, uh, you know, why should they get special treatment? But the thing is, when it comes to, if you've got government making policies on Aboriginal people, then Aboriginal people should be a part of having a say on what that looks like because for the past 100 years, policies have been written and have worked to the detriment of Aboriginal people and the Australian people um, to make change. So, you know, if you have an Aboriginal education policy, then you should have Aboriginal people actually provide guidance and advice on how that should look because they're experts in that area. Mm. Um, and a part of that's also a makarata, which is a truth telling, which is having people be aware of Australia's past, but also celebrating Aboriginal culture. I think people seem to think that if by celebrating and appreciating that 60,000 years of culture, they're gonna lose their, but it's not about losing your 230 or 250 years. It's about adding that 60,000 years to your narrative as a country. Amazing, yeah. So look, I think those things like supporting um, First Nations people on that. I think the other thing is buy from Aboriginal people. Mm. So if you're into jewellery, have a look at, you know, Indigenous jewellery makers, have a look at Indigenous clothing companies. So support Indigenous organisations. Mm. I think the other one is like where possible connect to your community. I, there seems to be for quite a long time a disconnect from Aboriginal community being a part of your community. Mm. So it's like and that's that's happened because of things like missions reserve so like for yourself in tari you've got mm. perfectly mission it's like yeah. well do i go into perfectly mission like why is there a, a like the context of, of fear of people not engaging in that community so absolutely i think people just need to and um you know that's the same for us like we've always had to fit into the non-indigenous community but the non-indigenous community never had to or wanted to fit into our community so mm you were to lose that fear of like that's a not my community like it should be a part of your community you should want to be and learn from aboriginal people and be a part of that community yeah so i think like some simple things a lot of people look at well where if i can just do a simple donation like to some organization they don't really know about um but the best thing you can do is well have a look at what's in your local community what do they do and probably where I change your narrative from help is how can I empower that organization? So like for you, for instance, like diabetes is one of our biggest issues in Aboriginal communities and you're a dietitian. So how can I use my skills mm. to educate? So it might not necessarily be your voice that goes, you guys should do this. It's you then work alongside mm. someone who's got an interest in that to empower them, to give them mm. the skills to then influence their community. Mm. I think a lot of people yeah like a train the trainer almost yeah yeah, yeah so a lot of people like it's interesting I've had experiences going where big corporates are like well what can we do and it might be a computer company and they're like oh we'll do some health programs like no don't do a health program you're good at computers use yeah. that skills to educate and empower people so that they have computer literacy or financial literacy whatever your skill set is use that and work with people as long as they want to be worked with. I think sometimes people in court in it, well, can I help? Can I help? Let me help. When people are like, mm. I don't want that help. So mm. that's where it comes back to what you're saying around listening is really important. Um, so look, I think it's just being open-minded, being aware, being 
comfortable and being uncomfortable, um, losing fear of making mistake, because even as black fellas, we make mistakes mm. in working with other Aboriginal people, like people got different opinion and someone might tell you, I don't like that. And it's, that's fine. Like, mm. um, I think what is difficult sometimes for non-Indigenous people is a way a black fella might say, you've done that wrong is very different to the way a non-Indigenous person might I'll say, and people then go, well, I'll just, I'll just never do anything again. Yeah. And people are going to just go, you know, that's just a different form of communicating mm. that you did it wrong. doesn't mean run away because when I look at people who sometimes got, you know, from an educational context, some of the best respect in community, the non-Indigenous people who didn't run away yeah. and they kept going up and yeah. that's what we want people. We want people to walk alongside us and keep showing up. We don't want people to put up a black tile on Instagram and think their job's done. Like it's more than just doing a, you know, social media tile. It's like, we'll come and be on the ground, be engaged with this and help make us and drive change and make people accountable, make politicians accountable. Um, Cause everyone's got an issue with people going on protests, but no one had an issue with, you know, people getting killed prior. So it's like, make them accountable for what's going on. Great. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, I really appreciate that. That was extremely helpful. So, and I know that it won't just be helpful for me for my selfish reasons of wanting to um, do better. Uh, I'm sure it will have resonated and really helped a lot of people listening along today. So Nat, um, thank you so, so much for joining us. I am going to be so excited when the 12th of July comes along to be able to see you knock out that 100K. Um, please support um, Nat if you can, or come along even just if it is to cheer um, yeah. as he crosses through that is two 10K loops as he keeps going toward that 10, um, 100K. Uh, I will have linked all these things that we would have talked about during this podcast to the podcast notes. So um, please link along, follow all these um, pages and um, ideas that Nat mentioned. Uh, and I cannot wait to chat to you very soon again. Thanks, Leisha. I really appreciate your support here and help promoting and just you know, having this conversation. It's been great. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Nat. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. See ya.